Chapter Seven of Schopenhauer in the Air by Sadakichi Hartman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo. The Wife of the Symbolist. To Mary C. Wilkins, 1896. With an absent minded look, she still held the knob of the door, through which a visitor had just departed, and softly nodding, she gazed at a book with a yellow cover in her hand. It impressed quaintly to see one of those vulgar, sensational books associated with this tall, refined woman, whose every line and feature revealed that she moved in an ideal world of her own. One of those women in whose presence I could sit silently for hours, dreaming and content. To this book, just frivolous enough to please the common herd without offending them, they owed their last happy years of married life, their long planned trip to Europe, the education of her daughters, and the independence of her widowhood. But she could live alone with her books and the fragrance of a peaceful world secluded home. What agony the hypocrisy of this book must have cost him! Through its pages gleamed nothing of his curious jeweled art. Over there in the bookcase, in the place of honor, stood those few thin pamphlets twisted in silver rhythms and studded with thought, into which he had breathed his soul. He had been one of the first symbolists long before little scribbling men and women played at the monstrous sin of the decadence, and silly little publications endeavored to dilute for American palates the sublime lesson of subtlety of Parisian symbolism. He had been of the first pioneers in an undiscovered realm. The most trying and ungrateful of all tasks in literature, demanding superior courage and enthusiasm, the merits of which are doomed to be abused and forgotten when mediocrity begins to gossip about it. Life with such a man had not been easy, she had excused his fits of venomous temper, even pardoned his brutality when he struck her. She knew the sensitiveness and inevitableness of a poet's mind. Had she not herself such a nature, although not creative? She had washed and cooked, lived a wretched life in boarding-houses and dark flats, starved and suffered, given birth to her children in charitable institutions, and reared them amidst superhuman vicissitudes, all to make him write his poetry, destined, in her belief, to rank with the best some day. She, at least, had not sold her life for the benefit of milliners and dressmakers, but for solemn agitations of words that in their sifting dustwards through the strata of humanity would prove filters evocative of new sublime dreams and endeavors. And thus, unlike other women, she had given herself proudly, conscious of her sex, to the man of her choice, when the right moment had come, having left until then their relations pure from all those flirtations by which men usually gain women. There in her quiet study, with its rugged, dark gray tapestry, on which Dasan by Steinlin were hung on long blue mats in Japanese simplicity, reflecting the whole gamut of modern life, 
She sat under the golden light of an Etruscan lamp, upon her lap the blue flower, which understood but by so few she had read so often until, perhaps to her alone, all the hidden meanings of every sentence and curious combinations of words had become naked and beautiful. It told the legend of a luminous leafless flower, of deep and satiated blue, growing passionless on the abyss of steep mountains. A gay procession in carriages passes by, and the tourists bend backward, groping for the stem of these blossoms of tremulant blue, which slip out of many a hand before they are broken. And with pride and jubilation they are fastened to lukewarm bosoms and prosaic buttonholes. Short is pleasure. After a few moments the blue marvel droops her head, her proud colors fade, and nothing remains but an ugly corpse. And the tourists feel pity, and good-humoredly reproach themselves for having willfully destroyed what was, after all, only a withering mountain dream, not realizing that on their path of life they step unconcernedly upon quite different flowers often including those of love and their own happiness. How deep she could look into the heart of that passion flower and build a thousand fancies from its mystic burning hues. With a happy smile she laid it aside and opened a parcel of rare French books just sent to her and which would lead her deeper into the significance of French symbolism and her husband's poetry. She was soon engrossed in the odorant subtleties and vague suggestiveness of individual symbolism. The little brochure had so much in common with that of her husband. But what is this? Surely it must be an illusion. No, it seemed to be an exact translation of the blue flower, word by word, yet it bore another title. The French author had shamefully stolen it and had become famous by it, while her husband had lived and died in obscurity. But the book had been published before her husband's, and the author was already dead when the husband issued his. Could it be possible? Her breath caught, her cheeks green ashen. In feverish haste, her pale long fingers scanned the biographical notes and became convinced of the fatal truth. He, who to her had been greater than any poet or king, the book which she had loved because she believed it the expression of his soul, the thoughts which she had treasured as his thoughts, were all a lie, and her whole martyrdom suffered in vain for a literary mountebank, a thief who had broken into another man's soul and appropriated unscrupulously what had been there accumulated after so much mental labor and emotional anguish, no fanatic of beauty and ardent mysticists, but a parvenu from the anthill of plebeian greed, a greengrocer on the mart of material advantages. This explained his failure. His blue flower had only a borrowed soul. She could have strangled the vampire for the vastness of his wrongs, that had drained the best life of her youth. Forever lost that to which her memory had gone with every glimmer of moonlight that had found entrance into her study, 
with every sow of wind that had rustled in the scandent vine of her porch, with every smile that had bloomed on her face, with every night that had fallen on her ascetic life. She sank into her chair exhausted. Her head dropped forwards with the unshed mist of tears in her heavily weighted eyes. The great ambition and joy of her life had vanished, and her body had become too weak to give further expression to the tempest surging in her soul. Poor woman, in what starlit realm did you abide that you did know that American literature in the year of our Lord 1899 is dead, that everybody plagiarizes in this country, and that when in rare cases something original is done, nobody dares to acknowledge it. Her daughter, a perfect image of her own dead youth, stepped in, and bending over to kiss her mother's forehead, she endeavored to take the book. You promised to let me read it. The mother, biting her lips in weary anguish, silently shook her head. Why, mother? You must not read it. And she flung the book into the fire. But, mother, you told me that every book could be read, if done so in the right spirit. Yes, all others, only not this one. And her smile was vacant, white, and acrid. The following morning, the daughter lovingly caressed her mother's hair. Why, there are a few white hairs. They must have come overnight. Yes, I am growing old, my child. And again the bitter smile played around her lips as if cut in stone, from which no chant of laughter or melody of gladness would ever again ring out. End of The Wife of the Symbolist